Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are continuing in our discussion on the responsibility of being an initiate. Enjoy us tonight. Hi, everyone. Father Tony here, busting in to tell you a little bit of a story. You might notice that we don't have a video version of this show to go along with this podcast, and the reason is I am uh, a fairly stupid person in general. Um, we pre-recorded this and another a video show and podcast, and uh, in order to fill in some space while I was away at Conclave, and we didn't really have time to work on uh, talk gnosis stuff, so we pre-recorded a couple of things. Um, and I deleted the folder. Just deleted it. Just felt like deleting stuff to make some room on my computer. Didn't really check to see what it was. And it's gone. So we don't have the uh, <laughs> we don't have the video version of the podcast. Um, rather, the video version of the show. Uh, we All we have right now is the podcast. Uh, but there's an awful lot of good stuff in this podcast with Matthew Backus. And uh, another good podcast coming up with, with David Atkins. And uh, you'll get both of those in the next couple of days. So stay tuned. Sorry about the, you know, idiocy on my part. Uh, it probably won't happen again. Although, you know, who knows. So uh, enjoy this episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. And all the stuff we referred to in the video show is is just gone, so sorry. Uh, we will try and re-record it again later. Enjoy it. Possibility of being an initiate. And joining us tonight is Brother Matthew. Welcome back, Brother Matthew. Hello again, Bishop Ken. Hi, Bishop. Hello, Father. And again, we are uh, being joined by Father Tony and Bishop Peterson, as we always do. Um, why don't we just jump right back into the uh, topic? And continue this from where we were in our uh, in our video presentation. Um, you know, maybe you can give us some kind of a little bit more specifics in in what you personally mean by by the responsibility of being an initiate. Well, let me let me start backward a little bit. Um, okay. You know, I had, I had a Roman Catholic background growing up, and uh, for for a long time. I did. I did what I was told to do, or what I what I thought best to do, or everything else. But I didn't really have outside of my parents, who aren't really big churchgoers, a, a spiritual guide of any sort. Mm -hmm. So, coming into a college fraternity, I thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, I, I always thought, thought good things about that, and I learned, uh, I learned drinking and girls, and that's about all I learned. <laughs> so, I. Uh, I, I got out of that uh, when I came home from college, and uh, I talked to my mom, and then she was like, "Well, why don't you go and try and find something else around here?" So I went. Uh, I went to the Masonic Lodge. I walked in at 21 years old, and I uh, told them, "Hey, I want to be a Freemason." And uh, some uh, some people who I'm still friends with to this day uh, showed me around the lodge and gave me a petition and all this kind of stuff, and you know, and that's. That was all fine. Um, I, I didn't know back then what I was doing. I left the fraternity for a little while when I got married and came back after I got rid of a bunch of stuff. Now, that bunch of stuff is what I wanted to discuss. I gave you a little bit of background so I could lead up to this part. Awesome. Uh, in 2006, I, uh, 2007 actually, I, I started practicing Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found it very rewarding, and 
I well, I can't say enlightening. I mean, that's almost too uh, too hypocritical. I'm not an enlightened person, I would say, but uh, but I I had this journey that I started, and I was very enamored with the whole culture of the Tibetans and their iconography and different things, which I still have on my wall, and uh, so I I explored it for a, a good long while, and uh, I met a man at a retreat, and I had just stumbled upon this. Uh, by the name of Namka Rinpoche, and uh, who subsequently became my teacher and uh, and gave me a lot of different insights. What I didn't know that weekend when I went on this retreat was that I was going to get myself into a situation that I would take an initiation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't understand what that meant, mm-hmm. but... And it took me a little while, but when I came out of it, to really comprehend it. So, for instance, the uh, the Tibetans have a uh, term called samaya, which means vow. And when you take a samaya, it uh, it has varied lengths of time. Mine was for a year. And in it, I had to read a book, uh, the words of my perfect teacher, which was uh, directed towards the Nyingmapa school of Tibetan Buddhism. And... Uh, I also had to recite the mantra of Guru Rinpoche seven times a day. I also had to say, or no, that the, the seven-line prayer to Guru Rinpoche seven times a day, and uh, the mantra to Guru Rinpoche a hundred thousand times in a year. And uh, I moved through this, and I was about six months along, and completely forgot why I was doing any of this. Mm, okay, and. It, Keep in mind too that I was still uh, I was still drinking back then. So mm-hmm. uh, those were the days where I would get off work and you know decide to tip a few and a few more and a few more. So it's very easy to forget. Uh, so I I said, what is the point of me doing this? Like I I started getting frustrated because I was like, I know I'm doing this for a reason, and but I didn't feel any true spiritual connection to it. So mm-hmm. now, story short. I went and I got the uh, the booklet, which I still have in back of me, actually. Not that anybody can see it anymore. I'm sitting here pointing to it because I'm looking at you guys. Uh, and I read about what the what the empowerment was for, and it was about removing obstacles and obscurations in your path. Mm-hmm. So I went and started my pra- practice again with intention. Mm-hmm. That changed everything. Okay. So for the past for that six months. I did it with the intention of removing my obstacles and obscurations. And I kid you not, Mm -hmm. after I was done with my Samaya, I let my teacher know. Mm -hmm. And I got rid of my marriage, my dog, my house, a car, my job. And a few months later, I quit drinking. Okay. Wow. So... I, I completely understood empowerment or initiation. From a from a different standpoint, and that it, that portion of that journey changed my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, what I didn't know is that quitting drinking would change my life again. Sure, you know. So and that it, that in and of itself, that cathartic method that I mentioned earlier on, that is the fourth step of AA. Whether they know it or not, that really is what it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you go through this, and then you go through fifth, sixth, and seventh steps of talking about it with another person and praying to God that 
you want your defects of character removed and you know and then they then that actually happening well I, in my in my lecture that I gave in Denver, I referred to that as well. And then I asked, you know, I ra I had everybody raise their hands in the crowd, and I said, "Who here has seen the movie The Matrix?" And uh, I saw some hands go up, and I said, "Well, for those that haven't, I'll give you a little background." In the in the Matrix, Neo's initiator, Morpheus, mm -hmm. gave him a choice: red pill, blue pill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Red pill, I show you how far the rabbit hole goes. You take the blue pill. Or maybe I got it backwards. But either way, take the blue pill and you wake up and all this is a dream. Now, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that I had that choice. And uh, so when we did this, I, there, there, is, there is something from another tradition where they, they make the use of a hand mirror. And uh, I, I had my sponsor back then hold up a hand mirror to my face and he asked me, questions about how does that make you feel and I went from a very jovial happy face because we were joking around so it wasn't so heavy while we were doing this mm -hmm. and I saw my face change completely from joy to sorrow disgust and a lot of various things like that and it became very real for me I started to see the error of my ways I started to understand that person that I was I didn't want to be anymore and uh, coming out of it that that red pill, blue pill option, you know, where Neo takes that one and then he starts off on his initiatic path and he wakes up and now he's welcomed into the new real world. Well, when I went home that day, I, I took a nap mm -hmm. and kind of felt a little dazed waking up and everything. But I woke up that next morning and my compulsion to drink had been gone. I felt lifted. I felt joy and I felt for the first time in years. Okay. And and I can I can only equate that to the fact that that truly was an initiation mm -hmm. that I went through. And it didn't it didn't hit me at that point, but years later it made sense. It sure. made sense in retrospect after I was able to do my own studies. And I came back to Freemasonry after that. And where I left off, I picked up and I've been on a rampage to make a difference since. <laughs> okay. Great That's story. An amazing story. And, and you know, sometimes people have stories that aren't terribly dramatic, but your, yours is uh, some pretty good examples of the, the kind of changes that people sometimes find necessary to make on a spiritual journey. Now, and not everybody finds that, but next, nearly as much as dramatic, not nearly as dramatic, but uh, that is what is demanded of some people. And, you know, uh, one of the things I just want to uh, kind of point out that that you discussed here, and I think that's important for all of our listeners to uh, um, really, I think, focus on. It's one thing that we've talked about a lot in in many of the things, whether it's in esoteric traditions, whether it's in whether it is in um, things that are sacred within the church, holy orders of the Eucharist. But to me, one of the things that's that really is the responsibility of an initiate is intent. Yes. Intent is a huge one. Um, sometimes um, matter and form <laughs> may be slightly off, but the intent um, and the intent and really kind of one's divine purpose in, 
and what one is seeking. And I, I think that is huge, huge, huge. Um, again, you know, to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, I got a little chuckle out of a Facebook post. One of my friends had posted them when I was checking in between uh, uh, the shows here. And it was, you know, some people's only intent on joining initiatory orders, whether they're Freemasonry, whether they're Martinist, whether they're Ila Cohen, high degree masonry, whatever they are, is simply degrees. You know, they're, they're paper hangers. You know, they want to uh, um, have a new degree that can give them bragging rights. But none of that is really the proper intent, now is it? No. You know, so, you know, to me, you know, many of the responsibilities of being an initiate, intent for me is right up there. I mean, uh, I'm not going to sit here and give an order what I think is the most important of, of the responsibilities, but, but intent is right up near the top for me. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I, uh, I'm 35 years old mm-hmm. and, and I have, you know, accomplished uh, quite, a, quite a big deal, I would guess, and in a short span of time. And I'm grateful for the accomplishments. But, you know, without doing the work, it, uh, you're, you could be, a, be Grand Poobah. It doesn't really matter what your title is. It matters right, right. about the work that you did. And if you're recognized for your efforts, then great. But the recognition, first and foremost, comes from within. And to know, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, you know, I have a I have a friend of mine who is uh, is a very accomplished Freemason, and uh, there was a, there was at one point in time I asked him, you know, hey, how do you want to be introduced? Because I mean, with the with the slew of titles after after your name, you could be introduced as a probably fifty things, but he just said Master Mason, and he probably has about fifty titles that he could strap onto the end of his name. You know, this whole slew of like. You could just say PhD, etc. You know, like there is so many things that this guy has done, and mm-hmm. he has been recognized for so much that all he wants after his uh, his name is just Master Mason. And I also want to comment on uh, what you said, Bishop Ken, is that the the going through of all these degrees and everything else. It, it's you know I've seen some degrees that were read from a book from a ritual. Uh, I've seen some degrees that are memorized, um, and I've done both. Mm-hmm. And uh, and because you know, I would consider myself uh, a ritualist. Mm-hmm. I would say that my want to read anything anymore. If I had to read it, first off, I would say, okay, I'm going to read this probably 20 times. I'm going to make little notations on there so I know when I need to pause, when I have to have inflection. All those different mm-hmm. kinds of things, because you know, I I need to make that difference in the candidate, and that intention is very powerful. Mm-hmm. But I try very hard to, if I'm going to give a degree, I try very hard to give it from memory, mm-hmm. and and that memory creates a connection between you know, let, let's just say that in the in the Masonic world, I could be an initiator, right? Because I've initiated people. Uh, but even though they don't have that that type of title, you know, it, when you when I make a connection with a candidate, I truly make a connection. Mm-hmm. And and you know, there are there are always the past masters in the room that want to talk, and you know, guys that might uh, guys that might not be there for the same reasons, and so they don't take it as seriously or what have you. But 
there's a there's an extreme difference when the room's quiet and you're saying your bit that you need to say and you're looking at that candidate straight in the eyes and you get done with it and you can just see him go you know not 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 that heavy or anything but you know right. wow he just really took that in Mm-hmm. And I think we've discussed that on some of our past shows and sort of the idea of kind of tying into the egregore. And I think very much, you know, what you're describing is kind of being tied into that fraternal egregore of the particular current that you're transmitting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and you know, it always helps that if there, if you can, as a leader, you know, I was, that's one thing I wanted to point out earlier. I think that, I think the being on camera thing and looking at you both probably freaked me out a little. (laughs) I think I got to be a little bit more relaxed now. Um, the one thing that I wanted to mention on the leadership thing, one thing that it's really important for a leader to do is set the tone for the night, you know, or the tone for the, the experience, because you could be the leader, you could be a guy in the room, but no one's as important as the candidate. Absolutely. And everything is about that candidate for the evening. So if the leader doesn't set the tone, then the whole thing can be, you know, literally destroyed in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we haven't uh, discussed, and I'd like to get uh, everybody's opinion on this, Father Tony, as well as uh, Bishop Laney on this, is that one of the other responsibilities, I think, of being an initiate in almost every tradition that I'm a part of is always making sure that we find someone who is worthwhile to to follow in our steps. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, I think that that sometimes is not something that is pushed enough by by some of the mentors out there or by other initiates within traditions of making sure how well their students understand this is. I mean, for any tradition to be a living and breathing tradition, um, there has to be that chain of union between the masters of the past, those in the present, and those who are going to come after us in the future. And um, I see that, again, as one of the most important responsibilities of being an initiate is to make sure that our traditions do stay alive and and finding those. Um, What's your guys' opinion on that? It's funny. I was just about to ask a similar question. And and what are the responsibilities of an initiate to those outside the order, which obviously Mm -hmm. is going to vary from order to order. Mm -hmm. But I I think that that, that you bring up an important point, uh, Bishop Ken, is do initiates have a responsibility to have our eyes out for other people who might be an asset to the order, but also who, who could benefit from the order as well? And um, that's that. It's kind of different, I guess. Being a female, it's a little bit different because you have a lot of men who grow up and and, and become Freemasons, uh, regular Masons, and uh, women don't always participate so much in a lot of these traditions. But you've actually got me thinking now. Um, you know, maybe that it it at some point maybe time for me to look for some other people and invite them. Um, but that it's an interesting question. I I found an article online. Um last week, maybe the week before, uh, by a, a Masonic author who said, you know, specifically about Freemasonry, Freemasonry isn't for everybody and it shouldn't be. Right. But there's a, um, you know, there's a certain person who is ready 
to get something valuable out of Freemasonry, and there's a certain person who isn't. And the in recent in recent years, in recent decades, um, in my observation, there's been a push in Freemasonry specifically to just recruit people so that we have enough people to you know hold a hold our lobster bake or whatever <laughs> do, do people bake lobsters i don't even know um roast boil boil, boil lobster yeah, boil yeah. um but so we had an interesting conversation actually with uh, uh greg kaminsky and and a, a masonic expert um so to speak, uh, Michael Worrell for, for our uh, Lost Word podcast, or rather video show, um, the one that we'll be releasing in June. And uh, we talked a lot about Freemasonry and, and how it has lost a lot of its uh, esoteric content. Mm -hmm. um, I think largely as part of this push to, you know, just recruit a bunch of guys so that, that there's more guys. Um, so I guess in a roundabout kind of way, answering your question, Bishop Canterbury, is that, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah, I think that it's important to find the right people for the order and the, and the tradition that you're involved with. Um, sometimes that might take a long time. <laughs> well, and it may take a long time. And, um, you know, but I think, you know, it is important, even if it's just one individual that you trust is going to carry out this tradition, carry it out um, true to its tradition, and themselves, you know, will pass it on. Um, I think it is important that uh, um, that we do that. I think it is definitely one of the responsibilities of being an initiate. And I think it's one of the things that I'm just thinking about this now, being familiar with some organizations that ha have lost membership over the years, um, that certainly I, I'm not fond of the, you know, throw everything against a wall and see what sticks. Uh, and certainly finding the right people is important, but there's also a responsibility of initiates to keep the energies going so that things don't get desperate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah that, that, that there's a real lesson to be learned from organizations that find themselves absolutely desperate. Well, okay, now we've got a situation, but maybe in the future we can learn from this. Mm -hmm. you know, one, one thing that I'd, I'd like to add, too, is that um, a while back, uh, another, uh, another friend of mine and I were having this conversation uh, very similar to the one that we're having now about the uh, – you know the types of Freemasons that would uh, that would affiliate with the fraternity, and you know what their intent was. And you know, I I was of the the mind that much like the discussion is, you know, what I feel is kind of leading in the direction of, you know, we we want to make sure that the candidate is worthy. But who am I to say that the mm -hmm. candidate's worthy? There are some organizations out there that you know you're chosen. For that organization, mm -hmm. people actually will find you based on the merits of what you've done in organizations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are, there are other orders like Freemasonry out there that you know they they do take in good men to make them better, and there is nothing wrong with that in my opinion. the The idea of every Masonic lodge becoming an esoteric lodge is a far fetched idea to me, mm -hmm. and and it's not because it it. Uh, it never was that way. Uh, it's not because of the the current membership of it, but me being an esotericist, I would say, you know, it's it's very hard to find company like company mm -hmm. amongst you know, amongst guys my age, amongst guys a little older, or a little younger, 
some of these guys, when they first get introduced, they don't know what they're getting into, much like me. So if I were to, if I were to say when I was 21, now many years ago, wow, that was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> if I was 21 and I walked in and people asked me, you know, what is my viewpoint on hermetic philosophy, I would be like, you got 10 holes in your face. I don't know what you're talking about. But it took me many years to, to come to that conclusion, you know, not just on that, but on many. So I will, I will say this, that there are a lot of Freemasons out there that are good men, that are not esoterically inclined. And they're great men because of what they've done in the fraternity. And mm -hmm. nothing and nobody can take that away from them. And that is a very important thing to recognize because Freemasonry, much like a lot of other bodies, takes all kinds to make that a body that mm -hmm. is a functioning body over the course of time. And if it weren't for those guys, I might not have the opportunity to practice what I now currently practice today. Sure, and that's the that's the beauty of Freemasonry is that you know the that esoteric stuff is still there in the ritual, whether or not the people who are performing the ritual actually, you know, know or understand the esoteric parts that they're passing on. You know, the 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 brilliance of the framers of Freemasonry say that you know don't change anything and memorize the ritual. You know, now of course we know that change has been constant, but that you know the, the esoteric stuff is still there if you mm -hmm. know where to look for it. And and those guys who are you know what they call knife and fork masons, you know, who just come and and uh, and hang out and go to and to have a nice dinner and then do some ritual, uh, they are they're still passing on the esoteric egregore of Freemasonry, whether they know that they're doing it or not, just yes. by performing the ritual. Yeah, no, I, that's. That's absolutely true. And, and you know, Father Tony, to speak on that too, you know, that that intention thing becomes huge in my opinion at that point. You know, because if, it, if there's a guy, if, there, if there's a brother that's going to confer the entered apprentice degree on another person, a candidate, and he knows what he's saying, but he doesn't know how to confer it, mm -hmm. that, that causes a problem for the candidate's uh, the candidate's absorption or maybe the transmission because he doesn't really understand that he's transmitting something. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of it too, there, there could be a guy who knows, you know, verbatim the entire ritual book and has zero intention and doesn't know at all what he's saying and just rambles it on and that could cause a problem. But mm -hmm. when, you, when you come, when you come to the, the ritual and not only do you want to learn it for your own self, but you, when you're conferring it on somebody else, you're conferring it with that intention. You marry those two things together, and you make that difference. Absolutely. Um, I just, I mean, shifting topics a little bit, you are a mission leader in a modern Gnostic church, the Apostolic Jonite Church. Mm -hmm. And um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Uh, yep. I... Uh, I, I want to point out because I, you know, I'm I'm learning a lot about the uh, the hierarchy of a church and everything else, and uh, so just in keeping my uh, my fingers crossed and my toes crossed and all that stuff that I get this right, um, I I think I'm the mission leader under okay. under Deacon John, who's my mm -hmm. rector. So okay. if I'm Father Tony, I think you can probably pipe in and am I is that is that a correct statement? 
Uh, to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel then I feel good about the comment that I can make now. Okay. Um, I uh, the the Circe's Temple first. Uh, let me let me start there because that's where it kind of started. Uh, the Circe's Temple was formed by four dear friends and myself uh, over the course of talking and putting everything together over the past year. And mm -hmm. we got a space in December, moved in in January, and at that point I was already well in talks with Deacon John. And uh, I wanted to pursue it because I had some people who were gnostically inclined. And uh, whether they wanted to coin themselves as that or not, is that's their own prerogative. But um, it, uh, it happened largely in part because those people came to <clears throat> together for the Circe's body and also largely in part from, uh, from Deacon John's willingness to make the concerted effort to support it. So it's... Uh, you know, to to this day, it's a you know I I look to him and and say thanks. Yeah, yeah well, it's 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 as I said, uh, it's quite an organization that you you're quite a church you've got going there, the mission that you have there, and it's a wonderful, beautiful space. I know you guys put in a tremendous amount of work into it. It's interesting that many esoteric organizations that I've encountered over time, a few of them have been able to get spaces, and I think it really makes a huge difference when an organization has its own space. Yeah, I, I do as well. And it, it's nice for us to have that. Um, it's nice for us to have it for St. John the Revelator. And it's nice for us to have it for the mission. And uh, and it's great to have it for Cersei's. And, you know, in that Field of Dreams movie, or I think it's right, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, I wasn't ready for the growth that happened. And I don't think we were ready for the growth that happened so quickly. Uh you know, since January, we have we've acquired four new members, mm -hmm. uh, making it a total of nine. Uh, as far as I, uh, you know, we have two more people in the area that are interested in joining, and I think it petitioned Cersei's, so that makes eleven. Uh, if half of those people decide that they want to come to uh, the AJC Mass, uh, that's awesome. And yeah. and I and I've made the you know I've made the the distinction to everybody to say that, you know, there, there is no way, shape or form a problem if you decide that you only want to come for the mission work mm -hmm. or if you only want to come for the Cersei's work. Whatever you choose to do, it's up to you. If you want to come to both, great. But if you don't, that's fine as well. I will say that there is a certain church member uh, who is an excellent cook and has been known to produce some very tasty lunches. Amen. <laughs> she Can made you... a delicious chili today. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed it. Yeah. Uh, there are probably some of our listeners who who haven't been with us for um, for for a while and who didn't see our previous interview with uh, Timothy Hogan. But can you talk a little bit about what Cersei's is and and uh, and what it does and all that stuff? I'd be happy to. Um, I got involved in Cersei's big in part thanks to Rob Hurd, uh, who's a who's a member, and uh, and Tim, and uh, my involvement came from, uh, you know, I was at a, I was attending a Masonic Restoration Foundation event and uh, inquired as to what it was all about, and uh, and Rob was able to give me some insight. So basically, um, much like a lot of other esoteric bodies, they work on a mail order system. So there is 33 handbooks 
that you get over the course of three years, 11 handbooks a year. And when you're done with your first set, then you have to write an essay. And the second and third year, you also are due an essay. So uh, part of the reason that I appreciate that is that it allows for accountability and the fact that they are not going to, and they don't, I know this because some of my members that are new have experienced this already. They do not continue to send you handbooks if you have not turned in your essay. And, uh, and it makes it, it makes it, you know, the, the essays are not graded. They, they're not judged, but they are, they're looked over to see what kind of advancement that you've made personally. Uh, and as I pointed out earlier in our uh, web episode, uh, psychologically, philosophically, esoterically, and metaphysically. Those are the things that they're looking for. <clears throat> Excuse me, they're looking for when, it, when they're looking over your essays. Uh, so the body exists as an uh, outer circle. And, and that outer circle houses other esoteric orders. And uh, the, uh, I'm going to brutalize this French right now, but uh, Ordre Sovereign du Temple Initiatique. And I'm sure that if Mar Thomas was here, he would probably slap my hand and say that I'm doing this. <laughs> so, but he likes uh, to think his French is fantastic, but uh, don't let him fool you. Well, I, you know, I don't know that I'm going to do any better than anything else, but it, you know, it, that that's my uh, that's my way of interpreting it. Anyway, <laughs> I I am not a member of the OPSI, so I can't uh, I can't give you any information on that. Um, but I do know that the the Circe's work in itself is uh, preparatory for those other bodies that exist under the Circe's umbrella. And be, just because you do the work does not mean that you will be elected for membership in these other orders, but it is a possibility. Okay. Is that sufficient for an answer, Father Tony? Sure, yeah. And I I'll, I would say also that I have been receiving the, the handbooks um, uh, this year. In fact, I just received my 11th handbook. Uh, I'm not a member of Circe's officially, but I have, uh, you know, through my interaction with, with Timothy Hogan, um, he, he has allowed me to, to read these. And, and we're, it's very interesting as a Joanite to see kind of this, um, this Templar-based stuff, since our, our, our Joanite church does have a strong Templar history as well. So I've, mm -hmm. I've, I'm very appreciative to him for uh, for adding me to that list uh, since last year's uh, uh, conclave, I went and visited uh, Colorado last year. It was it was nice to see all the stuff they do out there. Uh, very very active group and um, and and very knowledgeable uh, in esoteric stuff. So I was I was pleased to get to spend some time, and uh, I'm looking forward again to seeing him at our conclave this May. Um, I don't know when this podcast is going to air. It might be after that. So if so, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I've, uh, I've grown a, a good friendship with uh, Tim and his wife Lisa, over, over the course of time, and I'm very appreciative of the work that uh, they both do, and I know that, uh, you know, they, it is a very, it is a very active. They have, they have membership worldwide. Yeah, uh, the one of one of the things that I. I appreciate about it is that you know they he he does make those those kinds of calls to let let people in on what's happening and uh, you know 
if if at some point you decide that you want to join Cersei's, you're well ahead of the game on Handbook 11 already. But uh, that was in my first year one of my very favorite handbooks. So if you haven't gotten into it yet, I think you uh, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. Well, between you and me, I haven't really gotten past I think five. So. <laughs> <laughs> But I have them all, and it's on my list of things to do. You know how that you know how that is. Boy, there's a lot of reading to do. There is. There yes. is. <laughs> Each handbook is roughly between 38 and 48 pages, so it's uh, you know there. I think there's a there's a reason that they they go once a month like that, and there's exercises to go along with it too, and things that you should be focusing on, and um, there is a the the handbooks require work, mm -hmm. and it, and that is something that I will say. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out too is that there is uh, there are gatherings that are held four times a year. Uh, those gatherings uh, happen over the course of a weekend, uh, usually revolved around the uh, equinoxes and solstices, and uh, and there is a lot of work that goes into them, and. Uh, they have had numerous speakers of all different walks of life and esoteric orders. Uh, just at this last one, they had uh, they had uh, Brother Michael Pierce, who came in from Japan, uh, and he uh, talked about uh, the practice of uh, Chung, and which is a uh, a very soft martial arts practice, and how it's uh, it's very centering and. In the world of initiatic traditions, the uh, centering and being in the silence is very important. And you know, the the one thing about it is, it, it's a uh, it's a circle of cultural and spiritual research. So your your ability to to find out about a lot of various cultures and spiritual backgrounds is huge. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So you know, there that's something in general that you get just by the member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely recommended for anybody who's interested in kind of um, a general esoteric initiation or education rather. Um, Circe's has a, has a broad curriculum and, and, uh, and definitely worthwhile. Yep. Hey, right. And some orders don't have that kind of curriculum. So for people, it, it sounds to me that if somebody does not have much of a background in these areas, finding an order that has a good curriculum is really important. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And some of it, some have judged it very quickly. You know, I, I know some people that have, have looked over the handbooks and, they, you know, they get through, you know, the first three and they're like, oh, this is so basic. And, and that's fine if they're, you know, if they're past some certain points in their studies and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they, they have to understand that that first year is psychological in nature for a reason. You, you, have to, you have to ready your mind in order to be able to understand the things that are supposed to come. And if, you, if you're not doing that, that's a, you're doing a disservice to yourself for the journey that you're on. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of the Cersei's curriculum, it was developed to, um, to let's say, fill the gaps of uh, education that other orders um, left. <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the one of the problems that uh, and again this uh, from an interview we did with uh, with Tim Hogan one of the one of the problems that was uh, coming up in the OSTI initiates is that they did not have the requisite what they considered the requisite uh, basic training of uh, in esoteric uh, stuff that they probably should have had from the orders that they belong to. So that's where, that's where the Circe's curriculum came from. Absolutely. 
And it's, uh, and it, you know, it's also known as uh, the TRI or Templar Research Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they, they take the, the prerequisites for OSTE membership very seriously. And that's, that's good to know. You know, there is, uh, there is strong education and it's supported. There are mentors. If you have questions, you can feel free to reach out to pretty much anybody. There is a forum on the website for discussion. Uh, you know, the website has been completely revamped. They're starting to post old, uh, old articles from Dr. Onslow Wilson. Uh, there, there's, you know, different, a lot of different things that, it, that come into Cersei's. And I think too, that, you know, over the course of the past few years, they've, uh, they've gone through a little bit of growing pains and those growing pains are because they're growing too fast and, uh, which is a good problem to have, but it also, you know, on the on the flip side of that, you you have people that wanted mentoring. You had people that wanted to reach out and ask these questions. Well, they were getting inundated with them. Like, you know, how can I join? What does this mean? What does that mean? And you know, there with so many with so many people, they had to kind of start collectively bringing back people together so that they could answer questions properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I find in um, you know many of the groups that even if they do have a good source of study, I know. Uh, Many of the Martinist groups for years had used uh, a lot of the ISIS material, you know, the International College of Esoteric Studies, which is a good source of material. Um, but I think, again, without kind of a mentor, without someone who um, is kind of working with you directly through the material, I think some people kind of get lost in it. It's a, anything metaphysical is very tough. I, you know, the one of the things that always fascinated me in in this world was the word Rosicrucian. I was like, oh, that's such a cool word. You know, what does it mean? And and so I I looked into all this stuff, and um, I I became a member of the confraternity of the Rose Cross for a while, uh, three years, and I did some I did some different work in it, and uh, read through a lot of their. Uh, their handbooks and right now at the top of my head they had a name for them and I can't remember what they are but um, you know the it's not there there's no slam to that order at all it's actually a very uh, the the education in it is fantastic but they too only have a small amount of support for it so your your questions can you know oftentimes go unanswered for a little while and people can get discouraged they can you know they subsequently want to leave the order because of that and you know, I found that some of the work at, at a certain point in time, a couple of years ago, was starting to become a little bit over my head. So I, I was like, well, without someone I can closely work with, I think I need to back away from this right now and maybe reapproach it later after I'm a little bit more mature in my studies. Mm-hmm. That's wise, actually. Uh, a lot of people don't have that uh, level of self-understanding, so... Maybe uh, maybe it's indicative of uh, just how important it is for initiation to really work on a person's psychology um, when you can actually say, you know, this is, this is not something I can do on my own right now. Well, there's a, there is something that I wanted to read if you guys would, uh, sure. would allow me to. It's, uh, you know, I, I printed out this, uh, the lecture that I did because there were a few things that I wanted to refer back to in our conversation. And uh, one of them is, uh, it's from the magazine Ariadne's Web, and uh, Brother Wilson shared uh, a really cool little bit that I wanted to, I wanted to touch on. Uh, I quote, I also once knew an old Rosicrucian, long since dead, 
who claimed that he was an occultist rather than a mystic because to become the latter was too difficult. He also says that to become an initiate is hard work. You flip a few pages, and in this same edition, Pappas gives us a different way of looking at the term initiate. It can be one who is regarded with veneration. It can also be one who has simply done research and understands the need for fraternal union. Pappas exclaims that to be an initiate is very easy. Well, I would agree with Pappas in reference to modern day because anyone can join a fraternal, seemingly initiatic society. So becoming an initiate is very easy. Pappas says that up to a certain point, initiates can be trained, but no one can train adepts. Adepts are men rare among other things who arrive at this state of mastery only by their own strength. And I said, this very point, I believe, is where Dr. Wilson and Pappas come together in their statements. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's something that I think, if you, if you take a look at it, it can weigh heavy on, on what you really feel it means to be an initiate. There, there are people that, that join a society and think that, oh, now I'm a member, I'm an initiate, and that's all great. But what's changed? You know, what, what's changed in your heart, in your mind? What work have you done mm -hmm. to, quali to qualify that, that, that term for yourself? And so, you know, during, you know, a state of mastery from your own strength, state of mastery, that's a pretty lofty thing to say that you've mastered something. Mm -hmm. I've been a hairdresser for nine years. I've not mastered it yet. And yeah. I, I don't know how long that's going to take. So, sure, I think I, I think I have the qualities of an initiate. Am I one? Uh, by degree, sure. But, you know, by, uh, by all my actions, by all my lifestyle, by everything that I do, I don't know that I can consider myself one yet. Okay. What would you recommend to somebody who is considering initiation into some uh, esoteric or fraternal order? What advice uh, would you give? Well, there, there's, uh, there's something else I want to touch on. So in, if, you're in, if, you're be, if you're becoming an initiate, Walter Wilmshurst, uh, who is an initiate of several esoteric orders and a prominent Freemason, wrote that initiation is meant for the expert the determined spiritual athlete ready to face the deeper mysteries of being and resolute to attain the heights when awakened can take him. Uh, you know, so it's, it's just more than making a simple choice of participation in ceremonial acts. Uh, you, you kind of have to be ready for what it is that you're going to be doing and your, your preparation in it. Uh, you may like, for instance, let's say you became a Mason. Well, you may not understand all the, the preparatory work that should probably go into becoming a Mason, but maybe through your proper mentoring, you might have the chance of working backwards and, and having that opportunity to say, well, uh, you know, I think I need to take a look at my journey, where I'm at, where I came from, and where I want to go. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough to actually say how you can be ready for an initiation. But know that it's a very solemn thing, and it's a choice. And with those choices, you know, you you have consequences if you if you go against those choices that you made, and especially as your your knowledge of what you're doing grows, and you take away from those choices, and you decide that well, maybe this isn't for me, or uh, I've chosen a different path, or or what have you. Um, know that there's consequences there too that can weigh on you.
Mm. I um, I took initiation in a certain esoteric order, um, and and almost immediately regretted it. Well, actually, immediately regretted it. Like during the initiation, um, it was uh, it was one of those situations where there was a group local to me that uh, that was involved with an, a certain order, and I there was no other esoteric order nearby. And mm-hmm. so I said, well, if I want to be involved with something like this, I probably should just join this group that everybody that I know here is is involved with. Um, I I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing it for the right reasons, and and I, I, you know, I just wanted to do it so that I could participate with my buddies, essentially. And mm-hmm. uh, even though that the 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 focus of the order wasn't really appealing to me on on a you know, on a deep enough level, certainly. So I took initiation, and then um, it, uh, I knew during the the initiation itself that this was the wrong choice for me. So, um, so I I said, you know what, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out, and I did, and uh, <laughs> and I I think that was the right decision, but I, it got further than probably it should have. Yeah. Yeah. That can happen, and and, and I, I've been in similar situations, and yeah, that that can happen, and uh, which is why, yeah, I guess, um, obviously, even if, if a person isn't, if a person doesn't have enough wisdom, at least initially, perhaps there's not much you can do to stop it from happening. But taking time on both the part of the organization and on the individual, everybody's willing to say, okay. Let's all get to know each other. Let's take some time to do this. Let's have a period of time where you have the where you're you're working, you're getting to know us, you're reading our material, you're giving us some feedback, we're giving you feedback. That can be something um, that's really useful. And I think if an organization is too eager to do an initiation, that could be a sign that you know maybe you need to be a bit more cautious. Yeah, you know, one of the discussions I always have with uh, with students, it all begins with a conversation. And, you know, and I like to always continue this conversation in those dialogues because I don't want either A, us to jump into that relationship or the students to jump into that relationship till we both feel it's to the point where it is the best for both us and for the candidate. Absolutely. And, it, and the responsibilities of being an initiator is huge. I mean, I'm not, but I, I know many others. And, you know, like I, like I alluded to earlier, there are organizations where you're chosen. And, uh, you know, that, sure, you can, you can deem that as an honor or whatever, but it's, I don't think it's necessarily about the, the honor of being selected for something. But, you know, you, that person is chosen for a reason. You know, if they're, mm-hmm. if they're, a, you know, basically, if they're exemplifying the fact that they're doing work in order to improve their their lives and the lives of people around them, then you know that that work is duly noted by by initiators and by the people that are selecting those to become part of an organization. But there are a lot of ones, you know, in Father Tony's situation that are that are similar to that. You know, you you joined a, an initiatic society that you thought was you know, for, for whatever your intention was. And, uh, and you decided at one point in time that it wasn't going to be for you and you chose to back out. And I think that's admirable. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I've, you know, I have dropped membership in a couple of different organizations because 
I too wanted to associate with my friends in it. I wanted to hopefully develop something in it. And sometimes it, you know, it's, you, you learn in retrospect that it's just not about that. You know, the, if you don't have a certain resonance with the organization, um, there is no amount of fraternal bonding or anything else that's going to ensue is going to really make a difference. Right. And right. In, in our, in our circles, I guess you'd say, there's a, a tendency for initiates to kind of congregate and share their, uh, their initiations and their orders. And so once you, once you get initiated into one thing, the initiations just tend to fall into your lap if you're not yeah. too careful. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it happens at our own uh, Joe and I conclave. You know, we will have a uh, we'll have a meeting of the friary there. We'll have a Martinist Lodge meeting there. Uh, there'll be, uh, you know, every now and then. Uh, last year we did uh, Memphis Miserium there, and you know, it, you you just you happen to be at these things, and somebody says. Hey, are you a Martinist yet? Oh, well, why don't you come and you know join us uh, for this Martinist initiation, and uh, for good or for ill, that that definitely happens. Yeah, it, it's. I I think that it, you know you you touch on a point that I I think is uh, I think is important, and you you do want that. There there's an importance there to to feel recognized by your peers and different things like that, but. Um, you know, are are you ready? Like, you know, Father Tony, you and I have had conversations about the friary and different things. When I was first coming on board with the AJC, and I didn't know what I was getting into, and had some apprehensions at certain things, and you know, I was I was able to dig a little deeper and get the answers that I needed, and you were a big part of that too. And you know, so it's if if someone was going to become part of something, uh at least have the background information. Don't, don't do it because you just said, well, hey, you know, that's, that should be cool. I should be able to handle that all right or, you know, whatever. It's, you know, the, the, thing, the thing that I find most important is, you know, that choice leads to a lifestyle. That lifestyle changes your life. Um, you're, you're, you're choosing to become part of something that, that ultimately has, you know, it has – a consequence that maybe you didn't you didn't weigh out yet, um, and I'm not saying you personally. I'm saying anybody that would join anything. Sure, yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, but you know, so I I kind of I think about this. Uh, if it, if my lifestyle is not indicative to the fact that uh, I I can maintain my responsibilities, then I need to really seriously consider what my habits are, what my mm-hmm. daily routine is. Uh, because if, if people want to change their lives, uh, this is coming from a viewpoint. I read a book a while back. It's called the power of habit by Jack Hodge. It's an amazing little book. And they, it states in there that if you are looking to change your life, you need to change your routine. Your routine is the sum total of your habits. So you change your habits and you change your routine. You subsequently change your life. Mm -hmm. And so you, you kind of have to go back to that, that inventory that you take. Well, what are my habits? What do I do daily? Do I, do I take the time to, to set aside for prayer and meditation? Do I take the time to uh, uh, be, have, have devotion? Uh, all the things that are necessary requisites of an initiate. 
And if you're not taking that kind of time, uh, if you choose to take an initiatic path, at least be willing to change. Mm-hmm. At least be willing to look at yourself openly and honestly, maybe even look in the mirror and say, I need to change some certain things and whatever those things are. And, it, and that, that too is very important in the path. You know, if you in, if you wake up in the morning and the first thing that you do, much like I do, is grab your phone, check your email, check your Facebook, all that kind of stuff, and completely negate other things, then you need to go back and be honest with yourself and say, I've kind of strayed away from what I'm doing a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think I have enough capability to catch up and go back to those things that I should be doing. And, and I stray from time to time. Sometimes I get in a, you know, I'm weeks. I'm, I'm very good about, I get out of bed, I go and have a sit, I go and, you know, uh, that's sit, S-I-T. I want to make sure that was heard properly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and have my devotional period and maybe a little bit of reading. Uh, you know, before I became a seminarian, did I read the Bible ever? No. And in Freemasonry, it says, well, this is the rule and guide of faith. Ask, ask a majority of Freemasons out there if they read the Bible regularly. They'll probably tell you no, if they're honest. And because I know a lot of them that don't. And so as a seminarian, I, I had to find myself uh, back into different habits. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change them uh, completely, but it means that at least in the, in the day-to-day life of your routine that you're going to work on making some of those changes. I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been a really good show. Yeah, really excellent. good show. I think we've learned a lot, and I think uh, you know a lot of good, useful information for those who are uh, contemplating the initiatic path. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Brother Matthew. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. My pleasure, and it's been an honor to uh, to sit and. Uh, have a little bit of time to contemplate some of these things myself. And like I said, you know, go back to and do some of those things that once in a while I forget to. Yes. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much. And I look forward to doing it again if you ever want me. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night. This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information on this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. 